1: Hello friends, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, you know, in public and private life, timing is everything, a lesson that Justice Stephen Breyer learned well. Breyer certainly timed announcement of his retirement from the Supreme Court in perfect time for President Biden to name his successor and to get her confirmed before the midterm elections. And this is also a good time for all of us to take a fresh look at the court. How's it working? Where's it headed? What are the big issues before it this year and why? How will Justice Breyer be remembered and how will his retirement impact the court? You and I may consider those questions every few years, but as president of the Nonpartisan Constitutional Accountability Center, Elizabeth Widra considers them every single day. We thank Elizabeth for taking time out to join us today on the Bill Press Pod to take a long look at the court in light of Justice Breyer's imminent departure and the arrival of the court's first African-American woman justice. Elizabeth Weidra, good to connect with you again. Thanks so much for joining us today.
0: It's always great to be with you, Bill. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks, Elizabeth. So Justice Breyer announcing his decision to leave the bench, he's been there 27 years. Uh, Will he leave his mark? on the Supreme Court, what do you see as his legacy?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, certainly he will be known for his, you know, um, his attention to the way in which the law affects um, real people and the way that the law works in real life, you know, he was known for asking these very long questions at our <laughs> argument, you know, I think some people would count like how many pages of the transcript his questions would go on. But I think what they really get to is his concern with the way in which, you know, rulings that can seem very abstract when they're handed down by this high court and its marble palace um, how these rulings affect real people and you know from the very beginning of his supreme court career during his confirmations hearings justice breyer said the law must work for the people and i think that you know it's very fitting that part of his legacy will be that by retiring at this point he opens his seat up for the first black woman supreme court justice who will i think even enrich further The understanding by our Supreme Court justices of how the law must work for the people.
1: Well, you know, first of all, you mentioned his his, uh, participation in the oral arguments. uh, As uh, the great Adam Liptak from the New York Times reported this week, Uh, Breyer was known for asking some really kind of funny or peculiar questions, not just long, right? But like getting into (laughs) things like the marshmallow gun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the pussycat burglar. Right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think you know, I think he was definitely a character and, you know, um, you know, I think that that for the for court watchers, you know, we certainly enjoyed that aspect of things. Um, you know, he he's an intellectual. He's someone who um, you know, wrote a lot of books when he was on the bench who was oh, yeah. interested in um you know, really specific aspects of the law that could be seen as a little idiosyncratic. Um, But, you know, he, I think it's important to remember that he also worked um, on the Senate Judiciary Committee as counsel, you know, he has a really rich background in some of the more rough and tumble parts of, you know, the way (laughs) these things work, which I think a lot of us can forget, given the way he asked these very kind of erudite, uh, sometimes somewhat out there kinds of questions. But he definitely understood and I think hoped to embrace the idea of looking at the law affecting real people in their everyday lives um, in a, in a you know, substantial way.
1: I interviewed uh, the justice a couple of times, and he also talked a lot about consensus, about uh, following the facts, uh, about making the law work, as you say, for ordinary people. Um, it almost seems like um, a little old-fashioned,
0: <laughs> mm.
1: I'm not saying it's wrong, but uh, is it? Does it meet the tenor of the times? I guess
0: that's a really good question, and I think that you know, in, in some ways, his legacy will be a focus on his attempts to build consensus. Even though he did, off you know, he did pen from time to time, you know, sharp descents. Um mm-hmm. But you know, especially in the last year or so, he did. Uh, make public statements about the need to see the court as beyond politics, as an institution that isn't full of politicians in robes, as many people like to think of it. And in some ways, you know, that did kind of put him out of step a little bit with, I think, the current um, thinking about the court, which is that it's it's often hard to think of, you know, this hard right six three conservative mm-hmm. majority court as not following a political ideological agenda. And, you know, Justice Sotomayor, I think, said it really well in an oral argument comment in the um, abortion cases about, you know, whether the courts could survive the stench of some of these really right. radical conservative rulings. And so some of, some of Justice Breyer's, I think, demeanor and comments um, were a little out of step with that. And, but I think his decision um, to retire, you know, and pave the way for this historic first and pave the way for President Biden to make sure that, um, you know, we get a nominee on the court who will be committed to equal justice for all is important.
1: So uh, he obviously enjoyed his role. Um, you know, you've talked to him. I've talked to him. Um, he he loved speaking about the court, as you point out, writing about the court. Why did he resign?
0: I mean, you know, I think that, look, there's, um, you know, the when everyone thinks about retirement, you get to a certain age and you think about retirement. And I think he was certainly right. at that age. Um, you know, I think his brother, um, uh, district court judge Breyer uh, gave an interview saying, you know, look, he, he lives on planet earth and he's certainly aware of political realities of which president, you know, might replace him and whether there's a Senate that might confirm a replacement. So I don't think that, I mean, I think he'd be foolish to say he didn't think of Those things. I just think it was time for him to retire, um, you know, at some point relatively soon. And this seemed like a good moment. And certainly we will gain the benefit, I'm sure, of him continuing to speak on the law and the court. Um, You know, I I can't imagine he would criticize the court too much in his Mm -hmm. retirement, but we certainly will still gain the benefit of his intellect.
1: Particularly after the death of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, (laughs) uh, giving Donald Trump an opportunity to make another appointment to the court. Uh, there was a public public pressure campaign launched to get Justice Breyer not to do the same thing, not to die on the court, right, uh, and have a, a president from another party appoint his replacement. Even that truck that I saw all, over, all around Washington going around with the big sign on it, Retire Breyer. <laughs> do, do you think that public campaign had any impact?
0: Well, I don't think it had any impact on... Justice Breyer's decision, um, if anything, I think it might have, you know, made him think maybe I should dig yeah. in my heels. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I do think it had an impact in the public thinking about the court. And mm-hmm. and to that extent, I think that it's positive for the general public to be engaged with the court. And, you know, when people say they don't want the court to be political, well, you know, it's true that we don't want the justices on the bench to make decisions based on their own personal political agenda. But the way in which we select justices is inherently political because they're a, they're nominated by a president who is elected by the people. They're confirmed or not by senators who are elected by the people. Right. And so it's, it's appropriate to think, you know, about that political part because, you know, Folks on the right have been thinking for a long time when they cast their votes at the ballot box about how it affects the court, and so I think you know engaging progressives on this same subject, you know that part of it I think was positive.
1: So now we get to the process to for to, for to seat a new justice of the Supreme Court, and we've seen a uh, kind of the pendulum swing from ninety eight to nothing for Antonin Scalia, right hmm. uh, to what was barely for Amy Coney Barrett um how is this going to play out do you believe
0: I certainly think it will be you know along similar party lines even if it shouldn't be um you know President Biden has a deep bench of incredibly qualified candidates to choose from and you know the names that have put out people who have stellar credentials you know excellent Mm -hmm. reputations um but you know i don't think that necessarily means that they will get all the votes that they should um but you know there are some folks in this pool of of potential nominees like um judge katanji brown jackson who she was confirmed just recently to the dc circuit with some republican votes um and you know while i think some on the left have had problems with um certain senators from the democratic party not always (laughs) going along with the party line you know I, i think that when it comes to judicial nominations Um, You know, frankly, the Biden administration's efforts on judges have, you know, it has been a resounding success, both in the terms of getting the people confirmed in the Senate and the quality of folks that they've put on the bench who are diverse in every possible way and break the mold, I think, in important ways when it comes to making sure that we have civil rights lawyers on the bench, people who worked in public defender's offices on the bench. So, you know, I certainly see it probably breaking down around political lines, whether or not it should, but also um, continuing that line of success that the administration has had with judicial nominees so far.
1: Fast or slow? I, I must say, I was amused when some Republicans were saying, let's not rush into this, right? Let's take our time. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to how they handled the last one. but
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think for every nominee, this is a lifetime appointment to the bench. And so I think it's appropriate to make sure that we have you know, the appropriate process, but, um, you know, it's an appropriate process. It's not an unduly, um, drawn out process. If, you know, if Mm -hmm. folks in opposition want to engage in shenanigans, I don't think that's appropriate. You know, obviously there needs to be enough time to, um, have the Senate provide its constitutional advice and consent function, um, as they should for any nominee. But there's, you know, the idea of dragging it out, I think is, um, you know, probably just political hardball and not really about what they need in order to give their advice or consent.
1: Uh, I don't know whether you had a chance to see, but Stephanie Cutter, who is in, of course, the Obama White House, with an op-ed in the New York Times on Monday morning of this week saying, Democrats ought to learn from the Republicans when it comes to uh, 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 seating the Supreme Court justice and uh, get it done as fast as they can.
0: I mean, I certainly think that it's important to get this done um, you know, expeditiously. Um, like I said, I think it needs to be the appropriate process because there is Mm -hmm. a constitutional role for the Senate to play. But, you know, especially if it's someone who's been recently confirmed, um, you know, that shouldn't take that long. And, you know, I think that we've seen in recent years, as, you know, Stephanie points out, that, you know, you can get through um, a nomination relatively quickly, especially if there aren't any, um, you know, big problems that arise. I mean, look, I think on the other hand, You know, I think a lot of us wish there would have been more process when it came to Justice Kavanaugh's nomination, Um, but I, I don't foresee any of those issues coming with this nominee. And so I think it's you go with the appropriate amount of process. And I think we all know when that's appropriate. We all know all also can see with our own two eyes when shenanigans are going on.
1: You have uh, referred a couple of times uh, to the person who's going to replace uh, Justice Breyer. We don't know who she is, but we know she is a she, and she will be the first African-American woman nominated to the Supreme Court. Um, Why is that so important? Biden, of course, promised it as a candidate and has since, as president, um, repeated and and confirmed uh, his intention. Why is that so important looking at the court's history?
0: I think it's incredibly important. The Court should um, be a place that looks like America, and judicial diversity enhances judicial decision making. We know that decisions are better when there are a variety of viewpoints being presented um, among the decision makers, and that is, I think, eminently true when it comes to the crucial, momentous decisions being rendered by the Supreme Court. And it also enhances public confidence in the court. Um, We know from appellate courts across the country, that when there is a greater diversity of judges, um, that that's true. And so the fact that there is not a black woman on the Supreme Court, I think is a glaring error. And it's one that I'm delighted that President Biden is going to remedy. And the bench of black women attorneys being considered by the administration, at least according to public reports, shows just how overdue this nomination is there is an extraordinary pool of talent for the president to choose from. Um, and so that makes me triply excited for this Mm -hmm. historic nomination because it's long past time for a black woman to be on the Supreme court. And, um, even if he hadn't said, frankly, during his campaign that this was his intention, all, all of these names would be on any shortlist for the Supreme court.
1: And so the three front runners that we are talking about, would you agree, are Just uh, Judge, Judge uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson? You mentioned her on the DC Court of Appeals, um, Justice Leandra Kruger, Leandra Kruger from the California Supreme Court, and Michelle Childs on the Federal District Court of South Carolina. Do you agree they're the three front runners? Uh, how do they stack up, and who's your favorite?
0: Well, I know well enough from being <laughs> in this town and being involved in nominations that you can never say who's the front runner. Um, you know, you never know. Um, well, I never know. I'm sure <laughs> President Biden and maybe a couple of folks in his inner circle know exactly who's on his uh, short list. Uh, although maybe he has an even broader list right now that he's considering, and he's Probably. narrowing it down mm-hmm. um, during this time period. So. I think it's very hard to say that those, you know, particular three are the top three. Certainly, they're in the mix as they should be because they're, um, you know, incredibly talented and, um, you know, well credentialed folks with great reputations um, and have been certainly recommended well um, to the president. So I think that they are on the list. And you know, I I continue to want to see, as I have with the lower court nominations that the president has made. You know, someone who will be on the court who understands the way in which um, the law works for the people, as Justice Breyer said in his confirmation hearings, Mm -hmm. and perhaps just as important, the way the law doesn't work for people. You know, we have this extraordinary promise of justice and equality and liberty in our Constitution, but for far too many people, that promise rings hollow. And we've seen that throughout history up to this current day, a lot of that does break down along racial lines because of the history of systemic racism in this country. And so I think having someone on the bench who understands that deeply from both professional and personal experience will be really um, groundbreaking for the Supreme Court. And I think Long overdue and a very welcome change. So, you know, I think having someone who understands that from maybe their own background or from their work, if someone who's been a civil rights lawyer, someone who's been a, in the public defender's office, someone who has represented people standing before the awesome power of the law um, who might otherwise be incredibly powerless, um, and to be able to see in which the way the law can um, harm or benefit people. Um, I think it's something that's really important. And and I'm really looking forward to seeing who the president picks, because like I said, he's done really a spectacular job with the lower court nominees thus far, who are the most diverse pool of um, lower court nominees uh, to the bench and just really
1: great. Uh, and getting a record number of them confirmed uh, Absolutely. as well. So Absolutely. what what is your response to those critics? And we hear them, of course, uh, now who say, look what Biden's doing. I mean, he's saying... I won't consider any white man at all, no matter how qualified. I won't consider any Asian American. I won't consider any Latino or Latina, just a black, not even a black man, only a black woman. What's your response?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that that, that most of the time that is, um, you know, frankly, just um, not a particularly um, well-intentioned criticism. I think, um, you know, that's really not what I think the the criticism is aimed at. And honestly, you know, before he made that, that, that statement, he could have been thinking about the fact that this pool of Black women um, candidates are the strongest regardless of mm-hmm. the search criteria that you use. And like I said, it, it's appropriate to think about courts looking like America. It's appropriate and um, frankly necessary to think about whether or not the true diversity of talent that we have in our country is represented on the courts. And the fact that there hasn't been a black woman nominee to the Supreme Court is not because there aren't incredibly talented black women attorneys out there who should be who should have been considered, who should have been nominated. Um, And so it's it's long past time for someone to make sure that they are intentional about that and um, make sure that we have a court that looks like America i think it's been appropriate when other um, presidents have said you know i want to make sure that we have perspectives represented and i'm going to focus on a woman candidate
1: like ronald reagan did right
0: yeah and and yeah. i think i think it's appropriate and necessary and about time
1: so elizabeth Widra here from the constitutional Account- accountability center elizabeth there are lots of questions too about the current court, not just uh, the, the justice who is retiring. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about that. If you will hold for just a minute, we'll take a break here on the Bill Press Bot and then pick up on the other side. Well, today, instead of talking about one of our sponsors, we want to be a sponsor of a great organization. Today, we choose the organization to sponsor as the Constitutional Accountability Center, led by our guest, Elizabeth Wydra. Her team does a great job. Their mission is to protect and defend the progressive promise of the Constitution, for which they've already filed over 200 briefs. Elizabeth Wydra alone has filed over 200 briefs on behalf of state and local courts, members of Congress, the League of Women Voters, uh, the AARP, all defending the Constitution. Uh, they deserve our support, merit our support. Check out their website, theusconstitution.org. Theusconstitution.org.
0: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership to start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/adfree-news-podcasts. That's amazon.com/adfree-news-podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without
1: the ads.
0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu/podcast.
1: And we're back talking about the Supreme Court, Justice Breyer, and the court as is Elizabeth Widra. Our guest, she's president of the nonpartisan Constitutional Accountability Center. Uh, you can find out more about their good work at their website at the U.S. Constitution dot org so um elizabeth thank you again for joining us today uh let's talk about um the current court six to three uh, the breakdown is right now is this the most conservative court in our lifetime
0: i think it's appropriate to say that it's the most conservative court in our lifetime and and that's not to say that the roberts court before uh the trump additions to it um you know wasn't conservative it was already a very conservative court, but now with this 6-3 majority, it is, you know, an aggressively conservative court. And in the sense of the cases that they have um, taken up and also in the outcomes of the cases and also in the way that they reach those outcomes, pushing the law in a very conservative direction. And so the spotlight is on the court because of this vacancy, And I think there's no better time for that spotlight to shine bright because we are in a period where the six three conservative majority on the court could be engaged in a radical uh, restructuring of the law um, in a backward direction where, you know, some of the gains we've made when it comes to achieving the equality, Um, inclusion and meaningful justice promised in the constitution are going to be potentially taken away.
1: Is it the most political court in our lifetime?
0: You know, I think that, I think it's often hard to say. I think sometimes um, we have a tendency to, um, you know, think that the court is perhaps more insulated than it is from politics. But I certainly Believe that what we're looking at now is is a a really dangerous shift to the right in a way that doesn't align with the law, that doesn't align with the Constitution, and so that really um, can uh, undermine seriously public confidence.
1: Well, uh, and uh, to me, one way that happens, and you just referred to it, are in the cases the court decides. So, at least in at least three cases this year, affirmative just recently agreeing to reconsider affirmative action, already reconsidering abortion, already reconsidering gun rights. I mean, how, how do you explain that other than a deliberate attempt to go back and redo uh, decisions, earlier decisions that six people don't agree with?
0: Well, and I would add to that list, the. Um... The climate change Clean Air yes. Act plan cases mm-hmm. that you know are troubling on their own with respect to our ability to combat climate change, but also the underlying you know, sort, of, sort of wonky doctrine that the conservatives are focusing on in that case would really hinder the ability of the federal government to act, um, in positive ways across the board across the spectrum of issues. And so, but, and, and that, yeah. and so I think, yes, you know, you're right, the idea that. They decided to take up these cases um, that they're looking at overturning decades of well-settled precedent that not only is old, but is right, <laughs> you know?
1: <laughs> and, has, think- and has worked, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, I, it's just like, shouldn't there be a law that once things are settled, it's just settled and we move on rather than re-arguing? I mean- God I was in high school when they started arguing these things, right?
0: Well, and it's you know, <laughs> it's the look, same
1: issues coming back in the same arguments. It's just that the votes are different,
0: yes. And, you know, it's look, sometimes things need to be overturned. and um, you right. know, but but you have to look at what they're doing to overturn these cases. You know, are they going against their own rules for how you deal with? precedent and what are they trying to achieve and does that align or not with what we are guaranteed and especially you know you think about the abortion cases the idea that the constitution that the 14th amendment in particular doesn't protect the right to reproductive liberty doesn't affect your that doesn't protect your ability to come as an equal to the public square as someone who gets to write their own destiny in this most fundamental personal way that's preposterous and the fact that they're going to Get that they might uh, get mm-hmm. to that place by overturning decades of reaffirmed precedent, beginning with Roe, um, you know, is really shocking and extremely troubling. Uh,
1: and at the time, nothing we can do about it, right? They, these are life, lifetime appointments. Um, nothing we can do about it unless there are changes to the court. The president appointed a bipartisan commission to look at possible changes in the Supreme Court. Uh, Is anything coming out of that? Do you see uh, any changes, um, any change, for for example, maybe in the number of members on the court?
0: You know, first of all, I think that it's really important to be having these conversations, and so I think that you know whether there's something that comes immediately and directly from this commission report i think that normalizing conversations about court reform is appropriate because you know it's gotten mm-hmm. to be this like you know oh my god moment when we talk about it because we haven't been talking about it but it's entirely appropriate to think from time to time about ways to make the court run better and um to fit better in our democratic system and You know, I think you could make a good argument that we should have expanded the justices anyway, um, you know, even putting aside this particular context. But, you know, I I think that, um, you know, we've made it to be such an enormous hurdle. And look, I don't think you should make changes every day to the court because there needs to be stability. But it's appropriate to think about it. And, you know, certainly the number of justices is one, but there are other facets of court reform as well that shouldn't be as partisan.
1: Increasing the number of members on the court you believe, would not destroy the integrity or independence of the court.
0: You know, I think I think it depends. I mean, you could certainly see situations where it, it would undermine that. Um, but simply the fact of changing the number of justices—we've done that throughout history. So it's not like something that has never been done before, and it's not something that you know spelled doom for the court. Obviously, things can be manipulated in, in good or bad directions.
1: One other reform that uh, people have talked about, and now it's getting more uh, more conversation, I think, is a code of ethical conduct for the court, which believe it or not doesn't exist right now right
0: yeah so that's one of those that I think should not be as partisan um you know correct I'm yeah. not saying it won't be but you know look they should of course have a, a code of ethics and the fact that they don't I think is surprising to a lot of people as you mentioned um and is entirely appropriate you know we need to be able to you know come to the courts or we sh- we should be able to we aspire to be able to come to the courts and know that you know they're is not um actual conflict of interest or even the appearance of conflict of interest and and so yeah of course they should have that and and we should that shouldn't be a huge fight similarly like having more transparency about um you know hearing oral arguments or you know even you know Mm -hmm. that that should be something that that we should all get behind
1: well, the uh, the ethics code of conduct uh, has come to everyone's attention this week because of an article, I don't know if you've had a chance to read it yet, in this week's New Yorker by the great investigative reporter Jane Mayer about the political act- activities of Ginny Thomas, wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, who is out there uh, advocating a lot of conservative causes, supporting organizations that are bringing very right-wing cases, in front of this court where her husband has a vote. Isn't that a clear conflict of interest, or at least appearance of a conflict of interest?
0: So I can't, I can't speak to that, you know, in, in mm-hmm. the particulars, but I think, you know, it is very important that, um, you know, there is a, a clear code of ethics that would deal with conflict of interest, both in actuality and appearance, and that, you know, it's something that can be seen, you know, the code can be seen by the public and they can, you know, consider whether or not the court is following that or not. And that's appropriate for justices, um, you know, from both the left and right part of the spectrum, and it should be applied to everybody.
1: Do you think it's appropriate for the wife of a Supreme Court justice to be advocating causes that are before the court?
0: You know, I, I think that, that that you would have to put that to the kind of standard test of um, code of code of ethics and um, appearances of conflict of interest or not.
1: Uh, I must say, I think it would not be acceptable for the spouse of a member of Congress necessarily to to do that. And uh, I think a strong argument could be made. It should not be for the wife of Supreme Court Justice, too. Uh, You know what? This gets back to me um, uh, and I keep coming back to this and just like to ask, get your take on it, that we realize, again, as you pointed out, maybe we should be talking about these issues in the court more than we do. I mean, it's your full-time job, right? <laughs> the rest of us get in it once in a while, usually when there's big news on the court. But it gets back to the importance of the when you're voting for president, the issue of who makes appointments to the Supreme Court. Maybe the most important reason, would you agree, to vote for president?
0: I mean... Th- I I can't say the most important reason, but gosh, it has got to be up there because, you know, you think about the ways in which a president impacts your life, you know, and look, it is my full-time job and I'm not saying it should be everyone's full-time job, (laughs) but you, you know, you think about the way in which a president in office affects your life and there are deep ways in which the president affects your life while, you know, that person is in office, but who they put on the courts will affect yeah. you long after they have left office. President Trump, you know, with the help of Mitch McConnell, put an extraordinary number of Trumpist judges on the courts. And that is still, as we see with the Supreme Court, but it's true with uh, the other federal courts as well, still deeply affecting the direction of American policy. It's hamstringing President Biden in his ability to um you know, go forward with policies, um, as we saw just with the recent decision in, um with respect to the vaccine or test requirements that the court put out for large um, businesses. So you have to think about the courts when you're looking at your political engagement, because it is incredibly important. The issues that the courts rule on affect literally every minute and every aspect of your day. Uh, no matter what you do in this country. And the impact that the president can have on the courts is something that goes far beyond the years in which they sit in the White House.
1: Uh, And as you pointed out, it's not just the Supreme Court, right? It's all these other federal courts across the land where um, we're going to be feeling the impact of Trump's uh, nominees or judges, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Not just
1: nominees for a long time.
0: Decades. You know, he, he did a very good job of putting um, young people on the courts. And so, you know, if they stick to it and don't retire, they could be on the courts for, you know, gosh, 40, 40 years. You know, who knows? It, but it's it's a again, if he was only in office a short amount of time, his impact on the courts will be felt for decades.
1: Uh, and I to come back. You have pointed out, though, in his first year uh, with the help of Chuck Schumer, of course, uh president biden has succeeded in getting a record number of lower level judges appointed right so kind of making up if you will for the damage donald trump was able to do
0: i mean certainly to the extent that he can and you know he has made up for that i think you know mo- pretty much all of trump's appointees to the court um were white men and obviously very conservative and so the fact that president biden has put on the court and nominated this group of extremely diverse, um, extremely experienced and important ways, uh, folks. I think that undoes some of the damage to the extent that he can. But what was remarkable, about what Trump did hand in hand with Mitch McConnell is there was a record number of vacancies um, that mitch mcconnell held open because he blocked president obama's nominees um, at every step and so trump was able to put a huge number um on the court and like i said with young young folks who are unlikely to retire anytime soon and so that that does um thwart president biden to a certain extent but to the extent that biden has had vacancies to fill They've just done a top-notch job.
1: Right. So for the next few weeks, it's going to be all eyes on the Supreme Court, and we understand a lot more about what happened and what's going on with the court today. Thanks to you, Elizabeth Weidra. Thank you for all the great work you do day in and day out, and thanks especially for joining us today on the Bill Press Pod.
0: Thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure.
1: And that's it for today's podcast with Elizabeth Widra. We thank Elizabeth Widra and the members of the Constitutional Accountability Center. And we thank all of you for listening. We'll be back on Friday, of course with our Reporters Roundtable, which you always look forward to, as do I. And I'm sure there's gonna be lots to talk about this week as Congress comes back in session and they'll be dealing, of course, with voting rights again, with Build Back Better Plan, Uh, maybe some tough sanctions on Russia in anticipation of a possible invasion of Ukraine. And of course, we'll keep our eye on what's happening on the vacancy on the Supreme Court and President Biden's pick. That's up on Friday with our Reporters Roundtable. Meanwhile, take care of yourselves, be well, come back, and see us on Friday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.